as I mentioned, I'm a student of political science, was deeply struck by what, what Mao Zedong did in his early years of power, not usually known as, you know, a great corporate leader. But one of the things that Mao Zedong did as he was gaining power was he actually gained power first in the countryside. He didn't try and gain power first in Beijing or Shanghai. He gained power in the countryside by helping the farmers, by giving the things they needed to not be starving all the time. And not to trivialize that, but I've sort of taken that lesson with me. I think people are only going to follow you if you deliver on some things early on. I was always looking for opportunities, like sincere opportunities to kind of really, what do, what do people really need? What do they want? Can I fix that? When I did, you know, dozens and dozens of these listening sessions at Barnard, I realized there were a couple of things that people really wanted. And some of them were really hard to deliver, but a couple of them were easy. And I used whatever political power and, you know, financial resources I had to deliver that. To get, you know, and then you get buy-in and then people know that you're not listening just as a performative process. You're actually listening and, and you're trying to help. And I've always found that, you know, you can't always do that, but trying to see where you can get the early wins is really important. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last special double episode, we talked to Harvey Seifter and Fred Mandel, the founders of Creating Futures That Work, a company that uses teaching creative arts to improve people's ability to innovate. We started from their individual leadership experiences and then followed their journey to use art to build creativity in organization. The journey involved innovation research products conducted in partnership with the National Science Foundation and worked with several Fortune 100 organizations and even a class taught at the Sloan School at MIT. All of that led to the development of a curriculum of arts learning activities and experiences that can be used to expand innovation skills and they also led to the development of an instrument that measures the people's ability to innovate and serves as a guide on which skills need to be grown. And that instrument is based on over a decade of research and thousands of people taking various versions of the assessment. We had several interesting moments. For example, Fred talked about the parallel between melting bronze during the sculpting process and being in the boardroom. And Harvey talked about all the decisions that go into the execution of a piece of classical music by an orchestra. The theme of the parallel with an orchestra will surface in this episode too. Our guest, Deborah Spar, is a professor and a senior associate dean at Harvard Business School. She's very well known for her research and books on the intersection between technology and gender. But what makes her unique is her path, from professor and academic to president of Barnard College, to president of a performing arts center, and then back to being a professor and academic. As you can guess from our background, we had a very wide range in conversation spanning a variety of topics from leadership, personal career journey, to economics and society. One of my favorite insights is when Deb talked about how teaching the case method as a professor shaped her whole approach to leadership, and when she talked about the parallels between teaching a case in a class, conducting an orchestra, and leading an organization. In the course of our conversation, Deb also shared some very practical and powerful advice on how to successfully transition into a leadership role in a new organization when you're joining from the outside. 
And then finally, at the end of our conversation, we talked about some of the key findings on our research on, as I mentioned, technology, gender, and role, and some of the trends that we should be watching for. And actually, that research and our work in our latest book, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, and How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny, is fascinating. And so I want to share a copy of the book with you. Leave a review on Apple Podcast and or GoodPod if you're listening on GoodPod. And at the end of October, I will pick my favorite review and send a copy of the book to the author. Enjoy the episode. I am always very upfront about whether I have a pre-existing relationship with my guest. And in this case, I was very lucky. Deb Spar was my professor, one of my professors in my first year at Harvard Business School. And one thing that Harvard Business School does that is a little different from other schools is that it groups the students in sections. And a section is a group of 90 people that sit in the same classroom and in the same seat for the whole year and go through the whole first year as a group. And so as a result, there's a pretty strong bond that forms in that year. And even though, you know, it's been now 25 years since I graduated and I'm in touch with some of my section members, I'm close friends with some of them, but I think that the bond with the whole group remains. And sadly, the morning of the interview with Deb, I received an email from my classmates that our classmates Sanjay Singh had passed. And this has been actually a rough year for our section because about a year ago, another one of our section mate, Greg Wolf, also passed. And so very kindly, Deb agreed to let me dedicate this episode to Greg and Jay and to their memory. They were wonderful people. I was also lucky to have them as my teammates in the C-League of Intramural Basketball, as you can say, from the fact that it was the C-League, it was definitely not the strongest team, but we were champion in our second year and have great memories of that. So as we go into the interview with Deb, as I said, it's dedicated to the memory of Jay and Greg. Deb, it's good to see you after such a long time. It's great to see you, Dino. Just to get us started with our listeners, why don't you give me a quick background, your career, where you are and where you've been. I'm now at a point in my career where giving a quick background is becoming a little bit more onerous as the, as the years go on. But uh, I have a PhD in political science from Harvard. I thought I was going to be a spy or a diplomat, but events conspired against that. Instead, I became a professor at, at the Harvard Business School teaching really economics, political economics, and was lucky enough to have you and, and both, sadly, our departed Jay in my, in my early years in my class. I taught economics for a long time. Then I uh, took on some additional roles at the school and uh, made a leap about 10 years ago. I left Harvard Business School and became the president of Barnard College, which hopefully all your listeners know is a fabulous liberal arts undergraduate college for women in New York City. I did that for nine years and had a blast and then left to become the president of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. That was not a good move. I stayed there for a year and uh, then came back to Harvard. And I've been here now for a bunch of years or several years. I've taught strategy. I've created a new course called Capitalism and the State. And I'm now running a whole new area of the school devoted to business and society. So it's a wide and broad and somewhat odd career. And I've written a bunch of books along the way and been lucky enough to serve on a bunch of boards. So it's, uh, it's not one of those well-defined careers, but it's, uh, it's certainly never, it's meant that I've never been bored. 
Well, that's excellent. I think that not being bored is probably a really good goal to set up at the beginning of a career. So one thing that I want to talk about with you, which is very interesting, people normally do not think about professors or academics as having leadership or management roles, but it is, you know, universities need to be run and they tend to be slightly different animals that other corporation and they require different leadership skills. So you mentioned that you started taking on also a management role at the business school before taking the full leap. So what were some of the lessons that you started learning about leadership and about yourself as you started taking on that different role within the school? Yeah, no, and you're exactly right. I mean, many academics are explicitly delighted not to have to play any administrative responsibilities. I started liking them early on, and I was very lucky. Right after I was tenured, and I was sort of still quite young in my career, the dean at HBS, and, and you know, I think it was the dean when you were here, was a wonderful guy named Kim Clark. And Kim very consciously took young faculty and put them into leadership roles. And he had what's now called the Dean's Management Group and had a bunch of uh, senior associate deans. And he put me into one of those roles very early on. And then he moved me around and I, I did several other roles. And over the years, a number of us were in Kim Clark's uh, uh, Dean's Management Group. We've all gone on to leadership positions. And, and, and I, I pause on that for a moment because I feel so grateful that, you know, someone in a position of leadership sort of actively chose to give me and others leadership opportunities because I never would have, you know, you don't stumble onto these things on your own. And he really invested in us. And I think because, you know, I am a learner and an observer by nature, I watched Kim. And when I moved into the presidency of Barnard, I was kind of shocked at how frequently I was reflecting back on things I had seen Kim do. And, and so it's enabled me to be kind of a conscious leader you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of aware of what I'm doing. Not, not that I always get it right by any means, but I think I, I also sort of took the Harvard Business School case method with me. And I remember in my early days of Barnard having these sort of almost out-of-body experiences saying, huh, Deborah Spar is dealing with a horrible situation. What should she do? And I was able to kind of pull out of the situation and approach it. And then the, the, the last thing I'll say is, um, again, I was lucky. And I think, you know, to be honest, and part of it, because I was sort of, you know, a woman in interesting positions when people were, were eager to, put, you know, find women to put into other interesting positions. You know, I've sat on a lot of boards, both nonprofit and for-profit, and it's given me an ability to watch lots of leaders and to watch the differences and to kind of always be able to sort of compare, huh? This thing is playing out a certain way in Goldman Sachs, but it's playing out very differently in my daughter's, you know, elementary school. And being able to sort of compare and contrast has given me in some ways sort of a menu of options to think about. Again, not that I've always picked from that menu correctly, but I've seen a lot of different leadership styles. Yeah, I want to go back for a second. You mentioned earlier that you were thinking about the case study method in your role as a professor. And something that has always fascinated me as I progress a lot later in my career is in a learning environment like Harvard Business School, where everything is driven by the case method, and you as a professor are put in charge of a group of 80 to 90 people who are at that stage of a career, fairly young, in order for them to make it to that classroom, the reality is that all of them have experienced a very high degree 
of success. They really have no concept of failure. And at that stage, especially in the first year, just the simple fact that they made it to the classrooms has definitely, let's say, helped the opinion that they have of themselves. So the other side of that is that, you know, I think you were one of the best professors that I had in, in, at the school. You would not be here in this interview if you weren't. But I have also seen what happens in that environment to professors. They may not have the command of the room or the understanding of the dynamics. So what are some of the lessons that being in that pit for, you know, several years, four hours a day, five days a week has taught you? So, you know, this is such a great question. And I have to say that all the time I was at Barnard, I kept saying, I've got to write an article on what I learned at the Harvard Business School, because it's not like the obvious things. Because what I learned at Harvard Business School was the case method, and it shaped everything about me. I still haven't written that article, but I will one day. And you're really intuitive to have sort of seen that from the, pers- the professor's perspective. So the risk of being slightly too personal. When I started at the Harvard Business School, which I think was like three years before I taught your class, I was 27 years old. So I was the same age as my students. I did not have an MBA. I had a PhD in political science, which to an MBA student is totally irrelevant and useless. I was teaching economics, even though I didn't really know economics. And within the first two weeks of being in the classroom, I was pregnant. So I was not what my students were expecting. And it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And to your point, you've got to command the room. You've got to command the material. And and I didn't have those skills. And I had to get them. And I had to get them fast. And it took me a couple of years to get comfortable. And I had been a really good teacher when I was teaching at Harvard College. So I thought I'd have this figured out. But it wasn't even close. And figuring out how to you know, how to handle 93 egos in a room when, as you forgot to mention, they're also being graded on participation. It's insane. I mean, it's just insane. (laughs) And, but you figure it out. And I, well, not everybody figures out. I, you know, I figured it out in part because I had really good mentors and people invested in me. And, and I, you know, I I had to make it work. I had two kids by this point. Like I, I had to make this work and I figured it out. And the last thing I'll say on this is, Once I did develop those skills, they shaped everything else I did. So when I moved to Barnard, every time we were dealing with a really tough set of issues, one of the ones that I remember most distinctly was we we had to figure out what to do with transgender students at a women's college, which is a very complicated issue. And it's delicate and it's sensitive and it's intimate. And, And I dealt with it through case method. And we put 100 people in a room at a time and I asked three questions and And I have to say, I don't mean to sound self-aggrandizing, sort of after these events, colleagues would come up to me and like, oh my God, how did you do that? And why did you think of doing it? I'm like, this is all I know how to do. I know how to teach case method. And I think it's actually a brilliant way of bringing groups of people to a decision because that's essentially what the case method is. Yeah. And I think, you know, just one addendum, I think one complicating factor in your specific subject, you were teaching microeconomics and Macroeconomics, yes, sir. Macroeconomics and political issues. And, you know, you had a class where people sat along the food political spectrum. I think that was an era where it was a lot easier to be on opposite side because some of my best friends from uh, the business school and some of my favorite memories from this time was discussions with people that had 
a 180 degree opposite view of mine. But I think that there was a dynamic in your teaching and figuring out when do I bring out the opposing views? When do I bring out a series of things on the, a series of opinion that I know are going to be in line? And so I'm wondering like, you know, as you're in a boardroom, what are some of the sort of tactics, ideas that are coming from that experience that may show up? Yeah, I think, and there are a lot of tactics. I think one of them is knowing who your students are. And it's not that I could, you know, always predict what everyone was going to say, but I had a pretty good idea. You know, I knew who was where on the political spectrum. I knew who was good with the numbers. I knew who was bad with the numbers. And, you know, years later, when I, when I was at Lincoln Center, one of the things that I found so intriguing was that kind of leading a case method class is like leading a symphony orchestra. You know, there's something weirdly sort of musical about it. You can, and I always have to do the hand motion, which I'm sorry, I know people can't see on a podcast, but you have this array of people in front of you and, and you, you have to pluck a person out at the right time and you need to stop people from talking at some points in time and you need to get the quiet voices out. And it really is when you do it right. It is kind of a symphony and you have to you have to know where the voices are going to come from and you have to bring them in, you know, at the right time and at the right cadence. And different people do that differently. I found just because it worked with my personality, I used humor. You know, when I needed to shut people up, I I sort of tried to shut them up with something that was funny or at least, you know, was less felt less aggressive. But it took a while to figure that that part out. But you have to know the room. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting that you brought up like the connection between your personality and your leadership, because that was actually going to be my next question, which is you've had a pretty long leadership journey. And I think you have you mentioned that you have a good knowledge of yourself, who you are as a leader. So what who are you as a leader? What are some of the key traits, some of the things that you believe in? And some of the traits that you expect in people that you're taking in leadership positions under you. Yeah. And I think I think one of the one of the things I try to do is find people who in fact have different leadership styles because I've always felt like I need to balance who I am. So I tend to be um I'm pretty cerebral in the sense that I, you know, I still think conceptually and intellectually, very data driven. Although I myself am not, you know, super good at manipulating data, I'm very, I always want everything I do to be driven by data. I always like to be fact-based. And I think that's coming from HBS. Again, you know, part of what you do in the case method is you can't argue until you have the facts. So I always want to sort of test assumptions, get the facts, get the data. And then I am, I think, for both better and worse, and it really is both. I tend to have strong opinions. I tend to be quite good at formulating my opinions. I'm quite good at delivering my opinions. I'm pretty good at inspiring people, but I can go too fast as a result of that. And I have a tendency to get out in front of a team. What would take it for you to change an opinion? And is there an example of a situation where, like you said, you went very fast with an opinion and then realized that maybe another opinion could have provided a more viable solution? Yeah. And, you know, you learn, <laughs> you learn the hard way a little bit. You know, I have learned that I need to surround myself with people who are more cautious than I am. 
and people whom I feel comfortable enough with and they feel comfortable enough with me that when they come to me and say, Deb, this is a great idea, but you know, maybe it's not a next Tuesday idea, that I can listen to that and I can hear them. And I think I'm pretty good at that, although I'm I make mistakes, right? You know, I, I do tend to to be a little bit more impetuous than is ideal. But at Barnard, you know, again, it, it took a while. But by the time I left, I felt like I had a team that I could completely trust. And that when they, and they, they were smart, you know, they would often come in like two at a time or three at a time rather than one-on-one. But if, you know, my two top people came in and said, you know, we've talked about this and we really think we should do Y rather than X. I think I listened almost always. And I think there's very, and you always quote my mother, you know, you know, decide which battles you're going to die on. You know, there are occasionally things where I say, no, you know, I feel so strongly about this that I'm going to go against the advice of my team, but they're very few. In fact, I can't even, I can't even think of any, to be honest. An interesting, as I'm listening to what you're saying, I think an interesting point in the, in the leadership journey that everybody goes through, you know, you're very good at something, then you get put in a position in leadership, then you have a transitional phase where you feel that you need to justify that position of leadership and always be very right. And then at some point, the leaders that have a long-standing career realize that the strength in their leadership is in their ability to not always need it to be right, but to need in their team. Is there a moment in your career where you felt you made that transition? and Or does this even resonate? No, it totally resonates. But I don't think that I can point to a specific moment. I think it was an evolution. And I think a big part of it, and this too can go in both directions, you have to have the right team to do that. And, you know, when you move, I think there's a big difference in terms of sort of growing up in a place and becoming a leader versus coming in as a leader when you're also coming in as an outsider. So, you know, I, as I said, I came to Harvard Business School when I was 27. You know, by the time I left here, I kind of knew everyone. As I'm fond of saying, I knew where all the bodies were buried. I knew the fights that had been fought 30 years ago. I know who wouldn't talk to whom. And it gave me a power because I knew, like, I knew how to solve kind of every problem here. Because I knew who controlled which, you know, which levers. And most of the time, they weren't the people at the top. It was which mid-level administrators actually had the power. When I moved to Barnard, I didn't know a soul. And, and I think it took me a while to realize how vulnerable that made me. Like you think you're, you know, you're the boss, but you're not because you don't know where the bodies are buried, but you know, they're there. You don't know who fought with whom, but you know, those fights were there. And so I think it's, it's, you know, when you're in that kind of a, you know, apparent leadership, but actually vulnerable position, you have to kind of listen to everybody. And you also have to, like in those early years, I would be more cautious or wary of my team telling me no, because I didn't really understand their motivations and they didn't understand mine. So I think what became critical to me was to slowly develop a leadership team that I could trust and who trusted me. And, and that takes a while. And some of that leadership team wound up being people I had inherited who became part of my team. And some of them were people I, I brought in. But I don't think you can have that I don't think those levels of trust come automatically. They have to be built over time and they have to be built in both directions. 
There's no reason why they should trust me on day one. They don't know me. What's some of the things that a manager in that position, you know, at whatever level, new position of authority, still not established, what are some practices that they could do or follow to start building that trust? I think the most important thing for me, and I've seen lots of other people do it, is, is to listen. And it sounds trivial, but it's not. So I did in my first year at Barnard, I went to see every group, every department, you know, for an hour. I brought bagels or whatever it was. And I went to their space, you know, and I found that very important, harder to do during COVID times to kind of see what people, you know, see what the biology labs felt like, see what the library stacks felt like to try and live in their environment, even for an hour and to put the names with the faces and just to listen. You know, and, and I tried, to, it took me like a year to do that, but I think it was incredibly useful. Then, and this will sound strange, but as I mentioned, I'm a student of political science, and I, I always was deeply struck by what, what Mao Zedong did in his early years of power, not usually known as, you know, a great corporate leader. But one of the things that Mao Zedong did as he was gaining power was he actually gained power first in the countryside. He didn't try and gain power first in Beijing or Shanghai. He gained power in the countryside by helping the farmers, by giving the things they needed to not be starving all the time. And, and not to trivialize that, but I've sort of taken that lesson with me. I think people are only going to follow you if you deliver on some things early on. So I was always looking for opportunities, like sincere opportunities, to kind of really, what do people really need? What do they want? And can I fix that? And so, you know, without going into the gore details, you know, when I did, you know, dozens and dozens of these listening sessions at Barnard, I realized there were a couple of things that people really wanted. And some of them were really hard to deliver, but a couple of them were easy. And I used whatever political power and, you know, financial resources I had to deliver that, to get, you know, and then you get buy-in and then people know that you're not listening just as a performative process. You're actually listening and you're trying to help. And I've always found that, you know, you can't always do that, but trying to see where you can get the early wins is really important. That is great. So one of the things that I heard in strategy, strategy is like knowing what to do, but even more importantly, knowing what not to do. So is there any mistake that people should avoid? You mean during sort of that transition time? Yeah, that transition or, you know, thinking about just career management or like leader, building leadership with their teams, things that you've seen that. You know, one of the sort of sad lessons I've learned, and actually I was advised of this by Larry Bacow before I became president of Barnard. He at that point was the president of Tufts and I had gone on a listening tour of, of other presidents. And he told me something that I kind of dismissed and then realized was, was really quite important. He said, you're not going to be able to make friends in your new role. He said, hang on to your, the friends you have because you're not going to be able to make any new ones. And I really remember thinking, my gosh, what a horrible thing to say. But he was very right. And it's sad, but it's true, I think. You know, when you're in a leadership position, particularly if it's you know, when you're coming in as an outsider and when you're in a fairly high profile position, everybody is trying to figure out your motives. It's just human nature. And if you become too friendly with people in the organization, if you become asymmetrically friendly with people in the organization, it's going to skew your priorities. 
you know, you really do have to remain impartial. And that's hard, you know, because I think as human beings, you know, we want to make friends, we want to make personal connections. And I don't think that means you have to remain aloof and unfriendly, but you can't get too close to the people who who are in the organization and who report to you because you'll start making decisions based on friendships, which are not necessarily going to be the the best decisions. So I think how you maintain that balance of being friendly without becoming too close to anyone is important and painful. That is a pretty deep insight. And I think, you know, something that people don't naturally think about. I'm going to ask you one more question about more challenging things. And it is, you mentioned that you went to the Lincoln Center and that was a terrible decision. How does one keep an eye out to realize that they have made a bad decision? And then what are some of the lessons and ways to cope with disentangling yourself from a wrong move? Yeah, no, well, look, it's hard. You know, I think you do your homework as best you can and you gather all the intelligence you can and you check with your, you know, your loved ones and your advisors and you check with your gut. And sometimes you'll still make the wrong decision. And I'm not a huge fan of the kind of, you know, everybody has to fail to succeed. But I do think, you know, when you fail, you try and learn from it as best you can. And you try to learn, you know, gee, you know, why did that, why did that go so badly? And I do think, you know, it's painful, but you do become resilient. And I think, again, there's a question of balance that if you become too cautious in life, you know, you'll lose some great opportunities. I mean, if I look back in many ways, making the leap from Harvard Business School to Barnard College was a bigger leap than the leap from Barnard College to Lincoln Center. It was a riskier move. You know, it it was in some ways, you know, a bigger change of environment. And that one succeeded. So, you know, I'm glad I took both leaps, you know, one worked, one didn't. And, uh, you know, I wish I had some brilliant lessons of, you know, how you can avoid making bad decisions. But I don't. I think, you know, the lesson I've been really intrigued since coming back to HBS to see how much my students sort of are interested in, in, in these decisions. You know, I think the only wisdom I can take from it is, you know, especially now as we're going through the pandemic, which is that, you know, you survive. You know, and you're going through them, you think, oh, my God, this is, you know, the end of the world. But like, it's not at all. You know, <laughs> you, you survive and, and you roll on and, you know, life continues and, you you know, you got a few more bruises and bumps and scars, but you're kind of still the same person. You are the same person you were. And I think that's been useful for me to learn. And I hope, you know, other people can, can you know, look at me now and say, yeah, you know, she blew up, but she's fine. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> That is very true. I've, I've I've blown up a number of times in my career and a few of those I'm actually very grateful for. I want to change gears because I would be doing a great disservice to my listeners if I didn't cover, have you cover some of your research. And the one observation that I made as I was looking through the title of your book and sort of the, the theme that has gone through the books is this. I always felt made you an extraordinary professor. What I felt was really powerful in the way that you taught it is that some of it is by design in the way that the class is taught in that, you know, you're not taught the theory, but the application. But in the way that you taught, it went from this is of the theoretical situation. This is the situation that affects the two countries that are involved or the parties that are involved. But then there was always a deep dive to a personal connection. 
to whatever the decision was. And when I look at your research and the three books that you published, there is a theme that is deeply connecting very personal choices and situations with macro trends. The first question is, what inspired you to start looking at the world that way? You know, I don't know is the honest answer. What I do know is that I've always had this sort of dualism in my own approach to my work and the world. And it goes way back when I was an undergraduate at Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And I was studying political science and economics and history. And yet I somehow managed, I think I'm the first and perhaps the only person ever to convince the school that I should also do a second degree in English, English literature. And so I was writing, I wrote two senior theses, one on Soviet nuclear verification and one on Charles Dickens. So I've, I've always had this real sort of division between trying to understand the world as a system and trying to understand individual behavior. And, and it's really only later now in life that I can see these trends in my work. And you're exactly right. You know, all of my work increasingly, because now I'm sort of conscious of it, is I am trying to situate the individual and really our individual's most intimate decisions, decisions about love and sex and families within a macro context. And, you know, I'll confess over the, this pandemic, one of the few useful things I've done is I, I decided to read War and Peace, which I'd never read before, which is quite incredible. And, you know, that book is so extraordinary, you can see anything in it. But, but I think at some level, this is what Tolstoy is doing, too. He's trying to situate the life of individuals inside these incredible macro political and military shifts. And I found it an incredibly actually comforting perspective as we go through the pandemic and we go through these tumultuous political times to be able to sort of say, you know, gee, what is my role as an individual? You know, how do I contribute to make the world a better place? And at the same time, do I have that much ability to make the world a better place? And if I can't be part of sort of changing the world, what can I do within my own much smaller confines to at least to make these confines more comfortable, more loving, better situated? So it's a stress and a strain I feel personally. And now I realize and all authors write about themselves, no matter what they're writing. And I think I may just be a little bit more honest about it, about seeing that, yeah, I think these macro trends do affect us at very personal levels. And, and I think it's useful, you know, there's a lot of supply and demand, all the stuff you learned undergraduate that one needs to learn as well. But I think seeing, and we're, we're seeing it a little bit now in, in the Biden administration, that economics is not just an abstract, dismal science. Economics affects the lives of people, particularly poor people. And we need to bring those people into our understanding of economics. Otherwise, we're going to fail them and fail the system. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because one thing that I've noticed over the last 20 years, if you look at some of the people that have won the economic Nobel Prizes, when I was doing economics in the 80s, their work may not have been considered economics because it was not strictly mathematical it's you know it the some of the work in the past 20 years really goes into areas that are much closer to sociology in the way they connect to economics and and i think that's maybe a good trend for everybody you know your latest work connects technology and your book is called work mate Mary love how machines shape our human destiny where was the idea to connect the evolution of technology to really relationships and how that impact 
humanity. It connects directly to my own sort of zigzagged career. So when I was at HBS, I was doing a lot of work on the, the evolution of technology. So indeed, it was right around the time you were at HBS when the internet was sort of happening and everybody in you know, your year was jumping into the hallway and doing startup. And actually, I, I wrote a piece with someone in, in your section. I think it was in your section, sort of talking about sort of how the internet was likely to evolve politically and saying, you know, it's it's not going to be this sort of cyber utopia that people were thinking about. So so I, I've been looking at this technological evolution with a vaguely critical eye for 20 plus years now. And then when I shifted and then I, I wrote a book on um, reproductive technologies, which I thought were a hugely important area of technology that people at Harvard Business School like weren't taking seriously. Like reproductive technologies were this sort of vaguely, you know, unsavory thing that was happening in, you know, basements. But I, I think reproductive technologies are actually way more important than Twitter, right? If you think about how the future of humankind is being changed. And then when I went to Barnard, you know, I wrote a book on sort of feminism and on on what had happened as a result of feminism, which was the right book to for me to write at that time and the right book for the president of Barnard to write. And that's when I started to realize that there was this there was kind of no connection between all this work on technology and all this work on gender. And I think that both technology and gender are hugely important. I think most people would agree they're both really important, which makes it really sort of disturbing that there's not enough books and not enough work looking on, on how, at how technological evolution affects gender and how gender and families and love and sex are being affected by technology. And just because you mentioned it in terms of economic history, you know, the older streams of literature, if you go back to Marx, Marx and Engels actually wrote a lot about the connection between technology and the family. But that work has been lost, you know, over the subsequent eras. And, And I want to try and bring that back, because not just to be provocative or abstract, but I think it's really important. Because if you believe, as I do, that when that technological revolutions reshape not only business and commerce and markets, but they reshape families and personal relationships. And if you believe, as I think everybody does, that technology is changing faster than it ever has before, then we've got to be paying attention to how technology is going to upend our most personal lives. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to wind up in a bad place or we risk winding up in a bad place. So what are some of the things that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think we should be noticing that the the form of the family that we've sort of taken as the sort of, if you will, the normal form, you know, one man, one woman in a monogamous heterosexual relationship for the rest of their lives, that is no longer the norm of the American family. Like we think it is, but statistically it's not. The family is turning into a kaleidoscope of different forms which I think is wonderful. And I also think it's important. So we have, you know, gay dads, gay moms, single parents. We're going to, you know, polyamory is not going to be just kind of this fringe thing. It's going to become much more commonplace. I think for reasons that really aren't just about sort of sexual preferences, they're about family preferences. And, you know, just in this sort of trivial way, as I'm sure you and most of your listeners have realized, you know, having two working parents taking care of two kids or three kids, like the math doesn't work. Like you need three parents, maybe four, you know, maybe the guy across the street helping out, maybe a grandma upstairs, like as our work lives evolve. And we've seen this during the pandemic, right? 
once you start working on Zoom, it changes your family life. That's a technologically induced change. I think we're seeing the role of men change fundamentally if for ways that have an awful lot to do with deindustrialization of technologies. As the factory economy shuts down, the effects on men and male identities are going to be profound. And a lot of what I think we're, we're categorizing as politics or response to immigration or increasing partisanship at the core are being driven by technological changes. That is fabulous. We are getting close to the end of the of our conversation. It's interesting because this is the point where I normally turn to, I say, oh, now we're getting into the personal stuff, but you did have, there was quite a lot of personal, but what are your interests outside of your work and how do they overlap, enhance, influence your work? I don't have as many interests outside my work as I wish I did, but I, you know, I remain deeply devoted to reading fiction. I read a lot of fiction. During the pandemic, I've sort of gone back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, but I read a lot. And I find that that helps me both in terms of my work and also you know, in terms of my mental well-being. I realized during the pandemic, as I said to my children, that you know, left to my own devices, I kind of work and I work out. And that's, <laughs> that's about what I do. I garden a little bit. And I, you know, it's hard. You know, I've had a, a busy career. I've had a husband with a busy career. We have three kids. And that's kind of taken up all of our time. And, you know, I think now I'm at a point where I can start to develop a few more hobbies. But I'm not going to worry about that too much. You know, I think I've, I've, uh, I've got my hands kind of full and mostly in a good way. I wish I, wish I you know, knew how to do something useful like knit. But, but I, I haven't figured that out yet. But maybe one of these days. We all have... And especially I assume you being in academia, in a business academia, there's like business cliches, business jargon elements that start becoming really popular and they drive us crazy, make us want to rip our hair off our head. What is one that drives you crazy? What drives me crazy is nouns being turned into verbs. You may remember there was a moment in time, although I've given up this charge, I can't stand people using incentivize as a verb. I used to make students stand against the wall if they used incentive in a verb as any form, disincentivize, re-incentivize. I've given up. I have lost that fight. But I'm seeing it, you know, level set. Level set should not be a verb. It's a noun. Pivot. I mean, that one, okay, was sort of always a noun and a verb. But I refuse to take any perfectly good noun and turn it into a verb for no reason. I can actually testify to your <laughs> dislike for the term incentivize because I remember that coming up in some of our classes. I've lost that fight. Yeah, you know, it's like at some point you see it show up in the Webster, right? Yeah, exactly. I had somebody, a great mentor of mine, hated the fact that the use of the term actionable, which means actionable means that it gives rise to a lawsuit. We never, ever tell our clients that we want to give them actionable advice. Right. <laughs> Final question. I call it either food for the body or food for the soul. And it's an opportunity for you to pick one thing that really, you know, it's really inspires you. It can be, as I said, something you like eating, drinking, a book, a piece of music, a piece of art, a movie, whatever, something that has really inspired you. It's so much inspiring me, but music is a very big part of my life. 
you know, I don't have great knowledge of it. I, you know, I have no zero talents, but I listen to music all the time and a wide array of music. I used to torture my students by trying to pick music that related to each class and playing that music in class. I found it much more entertaining than they did. But being able to listen to music, I think it's the thing I've, I've missed the most during the pandemic is going to live music. So that's what keeps me going. And what's a, a musician or a piece of music that you like? My favorite, and it's, it's trite because it's everybody's favorite, but Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah in any form, in any format. Katie Lang is my current favorite, but there's something magical about that song. Fabulous. Well, Deb, it's been great to reconnect. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Thank you so much for accepting to do this. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you love the episode or enjoy the show, make sure that you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so that you get new episodes as they come out. If the platform you're on, like Apple Podcast or Good Pods, is a platform that allows reviews, leave us a good review and leave us a rating. Also, make sure you tell your friends and post about the show on social media. If you like music, stick around because at the end of the credits, I am going to share one more song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. If you want to learn more about Deb, go to her website, deboraspar.com, spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-S-P-A-R.com. So there's no H at the end of Deborah. Her book, once again, is called Work, Mate, Marry, Love. Make sure you get a copy of it. And you can also find Deborah on Twitter at Deborah Spar and on LinkedIn, linkedin.com backslash in backslash Deborah Spar. You can find me online at alf4ep.com and also you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And I am also on Facebook, look for the show Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Fullcast. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with guitars by Tony Savarino and bass by Jesse Williams. And now, as promised, here's one more song by Susan. The song is from our album Haunted Heart, and it's called Memory of the Light. Deb mentioned Katie Lang, and if you are a fan of Katie Lang, you will love this song. Just a casualty of the casual way you look at me. It's like you never knew me at all. You know you used to be the sun, the moon, and the stars to me. Now all I see is a vacant sky. When I look into your eyes, I see the memory of the light, the memory of the light. 